0: My guest today is Dr. Diana Thomas, who is a professor of mathematical sciences at the United States Military Academy at West Point. She holds joint research appointments at Columbia University, Obesity Research Center, and the Pennington Biomedical Research Center, and serves on the editorial board for the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition, PLOS One, and Nutrition and Diabetes. She has published over 140 peer-reviewed articles in exercise, fitness, nutrition, and body weight regulation. Welcome, Diana.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I want to start with one of your uh, earlier papers, uh, Best But Often Forgotten Practices Identifying and Accounting for Regression to the Mean in Nutrition and Obesity Research where you say forgetting the statistical phenomenon of regression to the mean is leading to wrong interventions and conclusions. You wanna talk a bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, So when you have, so just doing any kind of clinical study is tough. And so in a lot of studies, we don't have the gold standard, which is the randomized controlled trial where you have a intervention group and a control group. And sometimes they're also natural experiments. So maybe you're trying to understand um, an intervention at a school. And so if you're in a, doing something with a school, you probably won't have a control group. Hmm. So in these cases, what happens is um, you run an intervention. Let's say it's, uh, let's make something simple. You are going to educate children at a high school, adolescents at a high school about uh, changes in food or good eating habits. Yeah. So you'll take, you'll look at your data, and you'll find that maybe at the end of the day there wasn't wasn't a change in weight. So you expected a change in weight, your primary outcome, and you didn't find a change in weight. Well, what happens sometimes is the investigator is, I mean, that's their study. They're looking for something, so they take away, take out of that just the students that had obesity and they they see a change in weight in that group alone and so they say aha although the intervention didn't didn't work overall in general it worked for the people with obesity
2: <laughs> okay right
1: so the problem with that is is that um it, it, there's a phenomenon called regression to the mean it doesn't mean that the people with obesity didn't lose weight what it might mean though is that um if i step on the scale every single day um And there was a day that I stepped on the scale and it was a little bit higher, but it's oscillating up and down. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, on the whole, like if I'm weight stable, what's going to happen is sometimes I'll be high, sometimes I'll be low. And um, if someone caught me on the day that I was high, and then the next day, the next few days, they measured me, um, they said, oh, Diana, you lost weight. Uh, (laughs) My intervention had worked, but there was no intervention. Right. Um, and so um, that's what we call regression to the mean. Okay. That if you took my happen to get my highest weight, um, you'll see a tendency to go down to the mean. And this happens because if you are are a couple standard de- deviations away from the mean, you're taking those individuals with the highest weight, and they will regress towards the mean. So that's kind of a, a difficult thing to understand. Um, and so one of the things we did in that paper is we took the control group of a weight weight loss intervention.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we showed that um, we showed uh, in the distribution, if you take the highest and lowest out of the weight, uh, out of the folks' weights in that study and the control group, so there was no intervention, those folks moved towards the center
2: mm-hmm. slightly. Yeah. So,
1: if you're gonna do a study like this, there's ways to ac- actually account for the effect of regression to the mean, but you have to account for them before conclu- making a conclusion that, although your intervention might not have worked in the average person, it worked in the um, people with obesity. So that's regression to the mean, and we see it all the time, actually.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very problematic. So it sounds like, uh, Diana, that there are two issues. One is sort of sub, uh, using a subset of the data to make a conclusion. And the other is sort of the natural uh, regression to the mean phenomenon that's going to happen to the extreme values. Um, and so both of those things are happening in those types of trials?
1: And th- that's the most common one that we see is that we see a subsectioning of the data. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I don't, I don't know. We've written a lot of letters to the editor after the fact, after we see this. Um, we don't know what was in the minds of the investigators. But so I'm making up. Part of the story. Um, Mm. The story I'm making up is that, um, you know, I've seen researchers go through these studies. It's really hard to run a study. You get funded to run the study and then you had a null result at the end. But you need to publish and you need people to care about what you did. And so that's the temptation to go down and dig into the data a little bit more is there. Right. And then once you go in there, you see this thing. And you may not have really understood that this is what's happening.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is existing in a lot of scientific uh, disciplines, right? So there is a publication bias. You would rather find something rather than not find find anything. Uh, and and really, you know, uh, what we publish often cannot be replicated uh, in other trials. There was a a uh, very interesting finding a few years ago that showed that pharmaceutical products, uh, if you track their efficacy over time, they, they seem to show the highest efficacy when they come out, and their efficacy um, reduces over time. Um, and so, you know, this is indicative of the fact that as more and more people take it, uh, as more and more data is available, we are actually getting a better view as to what the real efficacy might be. And, um, and, and clearly, you know, the, the manufacturer of the product doesn't really have a, a great incentive to look into things like that.
1: And the same goes for the investigator here. There's no incentive. Well, I would say um, there's no incentive, but the I- idea is like you, you want papers and studies to age well. You don't want to just, yes, there's the immediate thing you want it published, yeah. but you also want you know, 10 years down the line, people to cite your work. And if that's if you keep that in mind, right. any time you start doing anything more with the data than you originally intended, call your neighborhood friendly statistician. <laughs> yes.
2: yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Um, I want to uh, get into another paper you have weighing the evidence of common beliefs in obesity research. And so you say in this paper, obesity is a topic on which many views are strongly held in the absence of scientific evidence to support those views, and some views are strongly held despite evidence to contradict those views. Uh, So you and your colleagues refer to the former as presumptions and the latter as myths, and you present a set of myths and presumptions. You want to talk uh, about a few of them?
1: sure um my favorite one out of these i don't know if this one hit this paper but we have another paper in the new england journal of medicine where we mentioned this one so there's um a long-held belief that um skipping breakfast will lead to obesity yeah yeah and um you know when we talk about deep set beliefs there i i was speaking to someone who is a family member highly educated um, very smart. And I um, told them, oh, I just got a paper accepted in New England Journal of Medicine. And, uh, and she asked me what it's about. And I told her oh, you have these myths that people believe in, but they're not true. And yes. I explained the breakfast one. So here's the breakfast one.
2: Right.
1: So the way we, we have a way to test this, right? We take people um, and then we, who habitually don't have breakfast and then we give them breakfast
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we see what happens. And we have a control group and we can compare it. And yeah. what people have found, researchers have found, is that when you do this, people who now include breakfast actually gain weight <laughs>
2: right.
1: uh, in comparison to their peers. Um, and so and then the opposite, if you don't eat breakfast, I, I believe that I'm, I'm not sure about this, but I believe that they've done the other direction, too.
2: Mm. And
1: if you don't have breakfast, it doesn't lead to. At least to weight loss, actually, a slight weight loss, not huge, yeah but um, and it makes sense because you're adding calories and you're subtracting calories. Right. so I, you explain something like that to people, and they will tell you that you know my my family member just looked at me as, but everybody knows that breakfast is the most important meal <laughs> of the day.
2: Right.
1: and you know, I, I've looked into this further than just the um, just that paper, um, just what we did in that paper. so for example, at schools. They'll tell you when they have standardized testing, they'll send a note home and say, make sure your child gets a a big breakfast before they come to school. Right. And I thought, well, why are they saying that? Now, there is evidence, actually, that exercising changes your brain and makes you, frankly, smarter so it can improve brain functions. So shouldn't I be telling my kid, hey, you have a, a... a standardized test tomorrow, you should go for a three mile run. (laughs) Um, But instead, we um, tell them to have a big breakfast. So I went and looked up the evidence. There's not a lot of evidence for breakfast and test taking. Some of it is negative. I I couldn't find anything conclusive. But despite that, it's a deeply held belief. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And people attach to it all kinds of importance when it isn't there.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a worldwide phenomenon, uh, Diana, I grew up in India and even there it used to be the belief. Uh and even now, as you say, uh it is still the belief. And I think this uh this really took off after the serial uh innovation. And so you can look at, you know, sort of the marketing uh techniques used by some of the serial manufacturers uh to perpetuate this idea that you know, if you miss breakfast, it's really bad for you. Uh, and I suspect, you know, this is sort of a reinforcing thing because nobody's looking at the alternative hypothesis.
1: That's that's correct. And you know, um, we—I don't know if we talk about it in the this paper that you pulled up, but I think somewhere we talk about reasons why people might hold these beliefs. Yeah, yeah. And it could be that, um, you know, everybody eats. You know, um, we. We look at around us we can see people eating we ourselves eat so it makes us feel like we have a phd in eating <laughs> and <laughs> I, so we I, know about this um you know you think about you think about this uh in terms of you know people who study obesity and they study it for a living
2: yeah
1: and yet people would tell them like you know the the person who was talking to me was telling me this you know but I'm, I study obesity. I study eating. (laughs) And so um, we think we know about this because we all do it. Um, But, you know, again, real science is when you go test out using our gold standard, a randomized trial.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I I couldn't, uh, I didn't understand. There was one called freshman 15. What exactly is that?
1: Oh, actually, I don't remember enough about that, but I think uh, my, my recollection is Um, You know, there's a feeling that when you go to college, you will gain a freshman 15. And we didn't find evidence for that. Um, We there were several of them that were just really deep set beliefs. The one that in New England Journal that everybody (laughs) that caught everyone's eye is that um, having sex makes you lose lots of calories. That Mm -hmm. one, like that was one of our seven myths that we had. And um, you know when what we that one was probably more, more interesting. I think that you know we estimated what it would be the best we could, and I think we got something ridiculously low, like fourteen calories, <laughs> something <laughs> something really minuscule. Um, but the freshman fifteen is about weight gain. Everybody assumes that when you go to college, you're going to have a weight gain uh, of fifteen pounds.
0: Yeah. So more generally, Diana, you know, it seems to me that physical activity in general, uh, totally from a physics perspective, the number of calories that you can lose is is fairly limited. You know, most of the calorie consumption is really endemic, right? The brain uses 20 percent of uh, the calories that you take in. Uh, Much of the metabolic aspects are really what the calorie consumption is going to be. And, we have a, yeah. we
1: have a paper on that actually, it's called uh, something, it's called why don't individuals, why individuals do not lose more weight on a um, prescribed dose, something like that. Hmm. And that paper gets every few years, it gets picked up by the media again, because it, it just astounds people's beliefs. But um, in exercise interventions, what pe- what people, what the finding is most people don't lose weight. Yeah. Um, and if they do, it's very, very small. And so we looked into it from a physics viewpoint. Like We can actually calculate in studies that have measured components of energy balance. We can actually use the first law of thermodynamics and estimate (laughs) a few of the other components of energy balance. And so what we found is, first of all, making people exercise that don't exercise in general is very hard. It's almost like getting people to do math when they don't like doing math. (laughs) And so, um, You know, at most, many places that do exercise interventions have people come in three days a week. So it has to be supervised. If you don't have it supervised, it'll be the same thing as having a math class that's not supervised. Nobody will do it. Um, So I'm giving my math discipline a lot of accolades here. But, you know, (laughs) um, so if it's supervised, what you need is people to come someplace. And when they come there, they, they generally come three days a week. Now, let's say you burned 300 calories each time you came. That's a lot of calories to burn on a Stairmaster or on a bicycle. But then you have to average that over the seven days. And when you do, it turns out to end up being about a bowl of cereal, um, an equivalent of of energy that you're dropping by. So it's not
2: that much. Um, Yeah,
0: yeah, I was going to say there's also a counter, counter effect because after exercise, people might be eating a bit
2: more as well.
1: Well, that's what we found here. Yeah. So we found that um, people believe that their resting metabolic rate increases, but it doesn't. For aerobic exercise, it decreases.
2: <laughs> right. And
1: even decreases further than accounted for for the loss of weight. So there's something called metabolic adaptation. Yeah. And so you don't get any extra benefit from running. Um, and then we also found that, um, you know, there was a study, a beautiful study done, done by Klaus Westerterp Uh, it was a half marathon study where he um, had a group of individuals training for a half marathon for a 40-week period. And um, in that period, uh, they didn't lose hardly any weight, some even gained weight. And when you do the energy balance calculations in those individuals, you can prove that their energy intake increased. And um, whether they, what reason they were doing it, and people have hypothesized that we, we call them compensators, Mm-hmm. So they compensated for their energy decrease by increasing energy intake. Um, but um, why they do it, we don't really know. Um, that's not known. And not everybody compensates, but a good percentage does. And, yes. you know, is it that they feel they can treat themselves? Well, I don't know. That's That would mean that would ascribe that to everybody. I don't know if everybody feels that way. Maybe they just feel hungrier. But you're talking about... <laughs> very low doses of exercise in calories. Right. You know, it's easy to tell someone to restrict 500 calories, but it's very hard to tell them to burn 500 calories. Yeah. And so at th- at the end of the day, you can make up that calorie deficit by just licking the peanut butter spoon a couple more times.
2: Yeah, yeah. It doesn't and-
1: take a lot to make it up. And so it could be just they feel a little bit hungrier, they take a few more licks, and then they've made up the calories.
0: Right. Yeah, you have another paper in there in the same area. So you say that energy intake and physical activity, energy expenditure are key modifiable determinants of energy balance, but traditionally assessed by self-report, uh, self-reported data. Uh, and, and that self-reported data is, is highly inaccurate, right?
1: Yes. Um, so that's kind of why I came into the field. I was actually minding my own business, writing my math papers. And um, I met uh, Stephen Himesfield at a conference, and he started asking me questions about energy balance. And, and um, I started working with him and a couple people that work with him. And one of them was uh, a, math- uh, a psychologist by the name of Corby Martin, mm-hmm. who um, they already knew um, that uh, self-report was highly unreliable. So Steve Heimsfield had done some of the first studies after Dale Schuller, who is another amazing scientist, Dale Schuller invented a method called the doubly label water method, where for the first time we can assess how much you're eating per day um, objectively using a chemical test. Yeah. And so it's actually energy expenditure. So if you are weight stable, it's, your ener- it's approximately your energy intake. Mm-hmm. And Steve used this in a beautiful paper in New England Journal of Medicine to um, take, uh, I think it was predominantly women, who he called them diet resistant. They said that they're eating very little, but they don't know why they're so big. And um, what he found is that um, when he dosed them with doubly E water, they're eating thousands of calories more than they reported. Mm. And they were moving uh, a lot less than they were reporting. Mm. So they're overestimating their, um, their exercise, but and they were underestimating their intake, over uh, underestimating their intake on both right. ends.
2: Right, so right, this has been
1: repeated many, many times, um, finding out that self-report is unreliable. And so um, when I came to work with Steve and Corby, um, largely what I was doing is using models to give at least a ballpark estimate of how much people are eating from their weight.
0: Yeah, it's um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a big issue. A um, lot of people would want to reduce weight. Um, we have sort of an obesity uh, issue. Uh, and it's a, it's a big, big number, right? So I think they're spending $4 trillion in healthcare costs, approximately 20% of GDP. And obesity itself might be responsible for a quarter of that healthcare cost, something along those lines, right?
1: So those numbers have bounced around. Um, yes. I've seen numbers that have been reported by a, a group in D.C., um, it's a really hard number to account for um, because let's say that you, you, you lose, let's say you lose weight by bariatric surgery. Yeah. Then once you lose the weight, you had other surgeries that you couldn't t- uh, take on because you were, had obesity. So you you decide to pay for them after you lose the weight. Are those in those costs? Hmm. So those extra surgeries. So it's a really hard number to lock down. But um, I know, like usually, I look at a range. Um, but it's high. Yeah. Definitely high. And now with COVID-19 um, and the higher uh, the risk factor with obesity, it's even it's even more concerning. But then, right. you know, you have to be careful because the answer seems like it's losing weight, but there might not be evidence that losing weight will reduce your risk factors.
0: Right. Yeah. So the question will be, I mean, ultimately, it surfaces as type 2 diabetes, hypertension and things like that. So so there's a general acceptance that uh, those things are highly correlated with BMI, uh, but I guess the question you're asking: uh, Do we really know if if somebody who has over 25 BMI reducing BMI in itself puts that person in a in a safer position? That's unclear, right?
1: Um, that's so parts of that are unclear. There's a, a nice study. Um, it was uh, done for many many years, um, and there's a look ahead study where they uh, it was. Um, a study that was done in diabetics type 2 diabetes yeah. um, and in that study um, they used lifestyle interventions to help folks reduce weight mm-hmm. and the primary outcome of the study was mortality
2: yeah
1: and uh, the study was stopped i I'm, somewhere after a decade it was stopped because there there was no evidence that reducing their weight changed the primary outcome but mm-hmm. there was a number of papers written showing that markers of health improved um, diabetes improved cardiovascular risk factors improved. So, um, so I'm not getting all of it perfectly because this was a complex study, yeah, but yeah. Um, at the end of the day, what it's saying is you live a healthier life, but it may not reduce those um, final outcomes.
0: Mm. That's because interesting. I mean, if we can see a mortality uh, benefit, uh, the ultimate outcome, then the other benefits that we we suppose um could be argued uh, for example type 2 diabetes are you know is it, really treatable now right so you can if you're pre diabetic or um you know glucose uh, sensitive uh, uh, re- reducing the, the the sensitivity there you have medications now you could take insulin so it's a highly treatable disease um and so so unless you can show, like, you know, I'm just speculating here, there is a mortality benefit. I wonder if it shows anything.
1: Um, so the absence of evidence is not evidence, right? <laughs> so we don't know.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, I think that that study uh, raised more questions. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. d- does it mean that we just die healthier? <laughs> I don't know. Right. Um, but it did definitely. There was an outcome that 5% weight loss alone improved health.
0: Yeah, but the question is, what is health? You know, uh, what is the definition of
2: health there?
1: Obesity-related uh, comorbidities. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, diabetes, cardiovascular health, okay. so those, then you know, cholesterol levels, all those things improved.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you have another interesting study here, Diana, dynamic model predicting overweight, obesity, and extreme obesity prevalence trends. Uh, and you say that the, the obesity prevalence in the United States appears to be leveling, uh, but the reasons behind the, behind the plateau remain unknown, and that uh, there are some reasons why you would expect this to plateau, right?
1: So um, the reason I wrote that that way is, um, you know, so there's confusion between uh, um, leveling, and um, it, this is happening also for COVID-19, um, we talk about flattening the curve, Yeah, Um, but and sheer numbers. So the sheer numbers leveling at that high level is not probably something we wanna accept. Hmm. Um, But the reason I said it that way is because sometimes people look out at that and say, look, it's leveling. Right. Look, all our OBC interventions are working. (laughs) And we show without any intervention at all with this model that it will level. (laughs) So it's saying that what that's saying is, hey, you don't know why it's leveling actually, because we're showing here that with just, so if you think of um, a population in compartments, I have people who have obesity, people who don't have obesity, and put them in separate compartments. Well, the only way to get from one compartment to another compartment is to move there fluidly, like a fluid, you're just pouring a cup of the overweights to become uh, with obesity Mm -hmm. and vice versa, to get back to normal weight, you pour some of that cup back, or to go from normal, so you're moving from one compartment to another compartment, just like fluid would move from one uh, canister to another canister. And so so if you use that kind of flow idea and first principles modeling, um, you'll get that leveling off Mm. a plateau. And we proved it was locally stable. So that if for all the mathematicians, that is a locally stable equilibrium point. And so that's without any intervention. So you can't clap your hands yet and say it's all our education and obesity interventions as contributing to that plateau. Mm.
0: Yeah. So your your conclusion here, in terms of you know, if you look forward 20 to 2030, you say yeah, very approximately here, you know, 30% normal, 30% overweight, 30% obesity, and and 10% extreme obesity. So those numbers, one third, one third, one third, approximately uh you are saying uh even if we don't do anything, we would expect the system to sort of settle down in that type of an equilibrium
1: that's correct
0: okay okay i mean that has that has sort of policy implications uh in twenty twenty do you know where we are um you know is, is obesity and extreme obesity still sort of an upward trend um
1: so uh- yeah, it it is. And so we point out that, you know, with the information we have now, so this is not a, a forecast model, it's a projection model. So you're projecting with the information you have now. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So if things change um, to any one of those parameters, that would change. Um. I think birth rate was a very important parameter in our equations. So mm-hmm. There's a, a series of parameters. Um, so, you know, using it as a forecasting model is probably not appropriate by using it for the, what's gonna happen with dynamics. If yeah. it's still increasing, something has changed. That's, you can also back calculate and say, it was supposed to stabilize and it didn't stabilize. Um, I did see an increase though, and the biggest increase was in the extreme uh, obesity category.
2: Right, right.
1: And that, that we're seeing.
0: Yeah, and from a, from a disease burden perspective, I think uh, you know, the extreme obesity bucket will have a disproportionate share of the disease burden, I would think, right?
1: That's correct. Um, one of the co-authors on that paper, Dr. Nikhil Durander, um, would tell me that one of the issues with compartmentalizing in this way, and the reason we compartmentalized the way we did was because he said, you know, someone with a BMI of 45 is very, very different than someone with a BMI of 35, although they're both classified with obesity. Yeah, one one has. And I, I today I wouldn't use the word extreme obesity. It's um, it lends itself to weight bias.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, I would just say it's classified with class three obesity. So that that would be something very different. Um, that person is very different. The the challenge that challenges they undergo is very different. And so um, and the medical challenges they undergo is very different. And right. so um, he pointed that out. And that's why we compartmentalize there. Probably what would be a better model would be one that has a continuity because BMI is artificially kind of thresholded. Those thresholds come from mortality yeah. um, curves. So it's kind of an artificial threshold to start putting on things. And so, yeah, if I did it again, I would probably do it a little differently to count for the continuity and the differences as you go into higher BMI.
0: Yeah, and BMI in itself is a very crude. Good- uh, metric to start with. Um, do you typically adjust the BMI for age, or well, that is not not? Um,
1: enough. it depends on what we're doing. So yeah. we're um we're actually using um 3D body shape. So some of the work I've done lately has been with 3D body shape yeah. um devices. So you stand on a device, and in 45 seconds, it gets a whole body shape measurement. And um, what we find is. There's, little po- there's pockets of people. We're actually starting to run a study now on looking at body shape and um, uh, the new army test. Yeah, sure. It's a beast of a test. Um, so uh, you know, who's doing well at that? You'll find people with bigger BMI just on the face of it are doing better at that. Um, so that might seem counterintuitive, but if you wanna lift 300 pounds, deadlift 300 pounds, you better not have a BMI of 18.8 you'll snap into two. (laughs) So um, you've got to be bigger. But what kind of body shape is also more conducive to doing better? Um, Are there certain heights that do better? Are there certain bicep circumferences that do better? So there's all kinds of questions you can ask there. So yeah, I think today we can do better than BMI with the new technology we have. But that being said, BMI does pretty well for two easily measurable quantities height and weight's all I need. And for okay. height and weight, I'm making those two measurements do handstands. Right. And we've done a lot of like uh, looking at whether um, weight scales to height squared, or is it something else in a different race? We actually did a study in um, the subcontinent of India, looking at um, individual, even tribal individuals to see if weight scales to height squared, and it does. So mm. the, the power is correct. Weight does indeed scale to height squared.
0: Mm. Interesting. Yeah, so this body shape, you have a couple of papers in this area, Diana, so let's get into this. So one of them is entitled Machine Learning Prediction of Combat Basic Training Injury from 3D Body Shape Images. So it's essentially like you say, you're making a 3D image, and in this case, you're actually predicting the probability of some sort of an injury that could happen.
1: That's correct. Um, so um, we already know um, from research that has been din- done in the Army that people with very low BMIs and very high BMIs are at higher risk yeah. for um, injury. Uh, so that is known. But the, the pockets that fall into those two buckets are pretty high. So it's not like you can take all the people with higher than this BMI and all the people lower than this BMI and then give them special training hmm. um, that might help them. So we wondered if um, – if there's more to it than that, is it posture? Is it maybe misaligned knees? So um, these devices take, uh, you within 45 seconds, you'll get 161 different measurements on the human body. Yeah. Um, they were for uniform sizing, so some of the measurements are odd, like you get a, a hat ring um, <laughs> size, like I, we don't really know. We actually did use that hat ring for something else, but um, you know, overall you, you stick those 161 one measurement and you throw the kitchen sink at it using machine learning and see if it can just tell you watch out for this person. They're going to maybe be high at risk. Mm. Um, So we ran it actually against uh, a new cohort that was at Fort Jackson that wasn't used to develop the models and 11 people were flagged by the model uh, Mm. as being likely to have a, a, a deep injury. And those 11 were kind of watched over by the battalion commander. And he told us later that none of them had injuries at the end of the day. Um, So just maybe identifying them alone and watching out for them and making sure that they're not stressing themselves is good. Um, But, yeah, so I think that, you know, I I envision a day where you walk into the doctor's office. You don't have someone make you stand on the scale anymore and do the height and weight. (laughs) Right. You walk through, and just like something off a of Star Trek, you something scans you, and mm-hmm. then a report goes to your doctor, and she says, "You know, you're at risk, a high risk for diabetes, or you're right. at, you know, she can do a initial screen from all those body measurements."
0: Yeah, yeah, you have a short piece here, Diana. I find very, very interesting. So, revisiting Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Vitruvian Man using contemporary measurements. So, so you, you're looking at. Current measurements and, and seeing whether it's actually uh, close to the the perfect alignment that uh, Leonardo even, uh, envisioned.
1: Yes, that, so that was uh, <laughs> that was uh, so one of my um, dreams. I, my father was a physician, and uh, he always had jama out on the on the countertop and on the coffee table, and so I I saw jama when I was a kid, and I thought I want to get into jama with something. And you know, you're always told you, you if you want to get into JAMA, it has to be clinically relevant. Mm. Well, um, another, uh, about a year ago, I was working with um, one of my favorite statisticians, Colonel Krista Watts, and uh, and uh, a department member, Major uh, Dave. Um, I'm blanking out on his name right now, <laughs> but
2: uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, um, Dave, I see his name in my face, uh, in his face, and <laughs> right now. Um, but uh, we, um, and Dave, Dave wanted to work on a, a neat project and, yeah. and I thought, you know, it'd be really fun to, uh, to do something with uh, taking Vitruvian man, Dave Galbraith. He played football at West Point um, when he was a West Point cadet and he came back to teach at West Point. And so um, Dave took the measurements fra- that we had. We had the similar kind of measurements with the same device at Lackland Air Force Base. And so we had many of the same measurements that um, Leonardo da Vinci had. And we're not quite sure how Leonardo da Vinci did his measurements. That information wasn't given. Um, yeah. But we, we had at least, you know, there's some sketches in his notebook, like your head is this much of your height, uh, of your total height, um, your head height. So we, we could do some of them. And so we came up with the measurements from the Lackland Air Force Base, and we noticed they're not that far off.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the average measurements are not that far off. And so, um, but they're slightly off. For example, Leonardo da Vinci said that your arm span is equal to your height. So if you think of Vitrivian man, he's standing inside this uh, yeah. square,
2: right?
1: And the arm span is the length of the square, and so is the height. Yeah. So um it's a little bit, the arm span's a little bit longer. And so um, then we thought it'd be nice to see this drawn. And so uh, Krista asked Dave, you know, is there a way that you can maybe put this in Photoshop and draw it? And I thought, well, maybe we should get a real artist to draw that. <laughs> I don't think we we should uh, go out of the realm of data science. Uh, this is kind of what we're strong at. We should find someone who can really draw. Yeah. So um, Mara um, Boucher, who is an artist, a uh, professional artist, I, I met her in the library here and I asked her, hey, you know, I've got this, Thing with Leonardo da Vinci, I started explaining it. And before I could finish, she said, I'll do it. And so she drew um, a modern day Leonardo, uh, a Vitruvian man. And she also, we had measurements for women. So she could yeah. draw a woman in that style. Hmm.
0: And both and, were pretty close. <sighs> both were both pretty close to the original. So, so the modern man and woman, um, the conclusion is that the modern man and woman is approximately the same as uh,
2: then.
1: The average, well, so you can't conclude that, yeah. um, because first of all, we don't have information. So in this, it's, it's also a deeply, his, it's a history project too, yeah. because we read Leonardo da Vinci's notes. We don't know what he did. The whole area of statistics didn't take hold till 100 years after, maybe right. more than that. So it was really not formalized. I mean, if you think about statistics, it was not really formalized till the, the uh, seven, late 1700s or 1800s, that's where you start getting, you know, regression. And so it's yeah. not like we ha- he had data that was collected in an Excel spreadsheet. And so we don't know exactly who he measured. Did he measure well-off people? Because well-off people were taller than non-well-off people. Uh, right. Did he measure women? We don't really know. Maybe he measured women and didn't put it into his notes. And his okay. notes are pretty sketchy. It's like a a bad um, statistics project, (laughs) not enough information. And so we can't really extrapolate from there and say, we have a comparison. We can only tell you that we took 64,000 Air Force uh, basic training recruits and we had them measured and their average is very close to what he reported as the ideal man from the Renaissance. (laughs)
0: Hmm. Well, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I want to I want to conclude with uh, your paper on exercise, um, Diana. One, you have one uh, study here is 44,000 sorry 4,400 steps per day. The new 10,000 steps per day. I was hoping for 44 steps, uh, Diana. 4,400. <laughs> but uh, do you want to talk a bit about that?
1: Sure. So I I like these numbers that come out. I, my favorite number right now is 70% dropout rate right from clinical trials. That's where we cut the clinical trial off. Why 70%? Yeah. Who came up with that one? Um, this one is also 10,000 steps. And so, yeah. um, Katrine, Katrine tudor Locke, who's on this paper, was uh, someone who really popularized the notion of 10,000, um, which definitely looks like it's enough. But we wanted to know if we could find minimal cutoffs. So, they're not optimal cutoffs. They're, in, like, they're the minimum standard that you have to achieve to keep from being sick. And then we looked at specific... Um, cardiometabolic illnesses and said, we know these folks have these illnesses and what was their steps per day? So we looked at that relationship between the two. Uh, yeah. And we did something called an ROC analysis to come up with yeah. a threshold. And so you see that the thresholds range anywhere from about 4,000 4, to 7,000, depending on um, cardiometabolic um, risk.
2: Right.
1: So, yeah, but that's yeah. So, so that's so minimal standards. <laughs>
0: Minimum, status. And and uh, I guess in the long run, you have to also look at, I don't know, I don't know much about this, Diana, but, you know, uh, there is an osteoarthritis question uh, as we live longer. And so, you know, the, the exercise regimen that, you know, that is, you know, generally prescribed in terms of exercising and, uh, you know, cardiovascular type exercising, uh, one may also need to look at what the implications are in the long run for arthritis and additional types of you know, diseases that might happen. Right?
1: I agree, um, I agree. And in fact, I'm fascinated by that. Um, there's a body of work done by Dipna Gallagher at um, the Obesity Research Center in, uh, at Col- uh, Columbia St. Luke's. And um, yes. she uh, has been looking at M- whole body MRIs of people when they age. And what you find is there's, there's adiposity in the muscles um yeah. muscle tissue. So you have um you have differences, even if you're normal weight when you're older. And so my question to, to her always has been can you stop it? And yeah. can you like train for something like the army combat fitness test? Because we have people at uh West Point that are phenomenally fit and they're over fifty. Right. They do well at that test. And I told her, do a whole body scan on them because <laughs> I don't think <laughs> you're going to see. Um, so I think that combination of strength training would help yeah. stave those things off. But um, there's not a lot known about, um, you know, that type of training. I don't know how many people do that type of training
0: <laughs> um, yeah, at that level. <laughs> yeah, that has been the recent uh, sort of understanding that you don't need to do a lot of exercising, but you need to do strength Uh, exercise, because I think the focus has been sort of cardiovascular, um, you know, for a long time, Uh, and uh, the other type of things that we are getting into now as we live longer, so you have to look at the whole sort of cost, uh, cost of health perspective, and uh, probably, you know, redesign the exercise exercise, uh, aspects or metrics that we currently use.
1: Probably, um, you know, I, I've been training for the Army Combat Fitness Test, and I've seen changes in my body. That yeah. um, you know, I'm stronger. Uh, I find myself less cold. Um, I find myself genuinely hungry. You want to feel hmm. hunger? Start training for something like that. And um, I'm more fit than I've ever been in my life. So, um, and I'm I'm 50. Yeah.
0: <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah. So th- this has been great, Diana. I really appreciate the time that you spend with me.
1: Yeah, thank and, you for uh, having me.
0: Yeah, good luck with all your research in this area. It's, it's uh, definitely needed.
1: Thank you. And let me know yeah. if you
2: have any feedback. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Bye.